Bibles tonight, if you would, and open them to Ezekiel chapter 33. As I said just a few minutes ago, we, we are going to begin a series tonight on evangelism, and I want to talk to you about this and encourage all of us to take our New Testament responsibility to share our faith. And we really hope that through this, uh, listening to this and putting this into practice, that God will really rekindle in us this desire for other people to know Christ. Now, in our Revelation series, just not long ago, I, you may remember a few messages that I, that I uh, preached on the last invitation in the Bible. And one of the things that I made clear in that message that, is that one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to give us a desire for other people to come to know Christ, to really give us the desire to speak to people and tell them about the faith that we have. Once we have been saved and we know what the Lord has done for us, then the Holy Spirit puts that desire into us so that other people will know the Lord as well. But something takes place over a period of time. It happens in the lives of many Christians is that we begin to lose that desire. I mean, it's still there if it can be rekindled, but we don't practice it as we should. And over time, what we actually do is suppress the desire so that we rarely or if ever, actually share our faith with anyone else. Now, tonight we're going to read from the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was a prophet and a priest in Israel. And God gave him a responsibility of warning the people to return to him, to repent of their sins, and to do what they're supposed to do to come back to the Lord with their faith. And he was spoken to, Ezekiel was spoken to when he was in captivity in Babylon, And he was given this great vision of the restoration of Israel. And actually, you'll find that the prophecy in Ezekiel stretches from the time when he lived all the way beyond our time, well, let's say beyond the first coming of Christ and beyond our time now into the second coming of Christ when Christ actually becomes to begin his millennial kingdom. And one of the things that you read about in Ezekiel is the millennial temple that will be built. So Ezekiel then was the spokesman for God. He was a voice to call the people to repentance. God actually called him a watchman for Israel. And I think we can take that and we can compare it to what God wants us to do, that we are actually to be a great lighthouse for the Lord. We're to send out the beacon of the gospel to a world that is dying and to people that really do not understand the danger that they're in. Now, if you'll look in Ezekiel chapter 33, we're going to begin reading at verse number 1, and uh, I I think maybe on your listening sheet it says we're going to read to verse 7, but we actually need to read to verse number 9. So if you'll look at this, beginning in verse 1, Ezekiel chapter 33, Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land... If the people of the land take a man of their coast, and let me back up. A son of man, speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchmen, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head." He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people be not warned, 
If the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. Let me stop there for just a minute because we need to get a little bit of the context of what's being said here. That in the first part there, verses uh, 1 through 6, the Lord talks to Ezekiel and tells them what a person should be required to do physically, that someone in the coast or someone along the borders of the country should be set up as a watchman so that when the enemy comes, he will warn the people. He'll sound an alarm that the enemy is coming. Now, what he does, what the Lord does then, is to make that a comparison to what he wants uh, Ezekiel to do in the spiritual world. That is to warn people of their sins and for them to come back to God. Now we see in verse number 8, he says, When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Now, this is what I want to talk to you about tonight, and that's about we as God's people being a watchman, only we're not really going to compare so much about being a watchman on the wall, but rather we're going to compare this to a lighthouse, that God's people are a lighthouse to shine the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. Now, in 1971, Ronnie Henson gospel songwriter wrote a song that really just very quickly rose to the top of the gospel music charts. It was one of those songs that someone writes and it just all of a sudden just breaks out and everybody sings it, everybody knows it, and it just took the gospel scene by storm. And it began this way, there's a lighthouse on the hillside that overlooks life's sea. Now many of you I know recognize that song as being the lighthouse Brother Dalton sang it for us just a few weeks ago. And that's one of those songs that's really an enduring song. And it gives the message that the gospel is, a, is really a great light. It's a light that leads people to the cross of Christ. It, it tells people how that they can be rescued from this perilous danger that they're in. And that is, they're under the wrath of God. And God is going to judge them for their sins. And unless they have repented their sins and turned to Christ, then they're going to be, what we might say, shipwrecked. Their their souls are going to be lost. And so this reminds us that we are God's lighthouse, that we are to shine the light of the gospel out on the dangerous sea of sin. So Ezekiel was the watchman in the night. And and we're also to be the keepers of the light. It's our duty to warn people that they are to repent and trust Christ unless they do suffer that shipwreck of their souls. Now, first of all, what I'd like us to look at tonight is the mission of the church, the mission. What has God called us to do? On the coast of North Carolina, there's an area there that's called the Outer Banks, I've had the opportunity to visit there on several occasions. Uh, Just a few months ago, or rather a few years ago, I uh, took a a few days of vacation. We went to the Outer Banks. And if you've ever been there before, it's really just a beautiful spot. And 
looking at the beauty of it, you would never know, if you didn't know the history of the area, if you didn't know what had gone on there, you would never guess that this is one of the most dangerous places on the, on the coast of the United States. This is a, a very dangerous area. In fact, it's been called the graveyard of the Atlantic. And over the past 400 years, there have been 300 ships that were lost at sea in that area. And the problem is that there is a 14-mile stretch of sandbar along the coast, and it's hidden from the ship's view, and this place is called the Diamond Shoals. It's a, it's a very, very dangerous area. And because of the frequency of disasters there, the U.S. government decided that in 1870 they would build a lighthouse, and they did. And the lighthouse, you may know or recognize the name of it, is the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. Now, I don't know if you're very interested in lighthouses or not. I find lighthouses to be somewhat fascinating. And uh, I've uh, visited the ones up and down the coast of California, as many of you probably have. Uh, I've seen a lot of lighthouses that are on the East Coast. And for some reason, they they really do interest me. And so if I know that there's a lighthouse nearby, I, I always divert off the way, and so I can go see that lighthouse. My daughter Clarissa is fond of lighthouses. In fact, uh, in her home there in San Diego, she has uh, her house decorated in, in various areas of the house with lighthouses. Well, the Cape Hatteras lighthouse is a very unique one, and that's because it had a special beacon that made it distinct from all the other lighthouses up and down the East Coast. A sailor knew where he was because of the frequency of that light, and it was a very peculiar type of flash of light. So that was, that was a unique thing. And, and what we think about, when we think about lighthouses, we u- usually think, well, a lighthouse is for the darkest of nights. Uh, a lighthouse is for the dangerous coast, and that's for the nighttime so sailors can see where they are. But the Cape Hatteras lighthouse was, again, unique because it's so tall. It's 208 feet tall, and it has this special painting. It's not actually a candy stripe like you think of the red and white, but it's actually black and white with a stripe that goes around it. And so sailors could see that even in the daytime, and so they were able to tell where they were. This lighthouse is also just a magnificent feat of engineering. Uh, It has walls that are 48 inches thick, so it's it's an impressive place. But the people who built the lighthouse didn't really build it to be an engineering feat. It's not a monument to engineering, but the purpose of that lighthouse was to save lives. And that's the same mission that God has given us as a church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the purpose of the church has been the same since he commissioned his apostles 2,000 years ago. He commissioned them with the gospel of Christ, and he told them, go out and preach the gospel. Now, we're not to think that the church is a building like a lighthouse is a type of a building. The church is not the building. The church is a living organism. It's not the building that we meet in. This is just a place that we meet. This is where we come together. We banded together, and the church is actually the people. You are the lighthouse. You are the people. You are the ones that are be the, to be the ones that, that shine out with the light of Christ. But sometimes this is what we do think. We think that the church is our building. And so it's our responsibility to keep the building up, protect the building, make sure that nothing else happens to the building. But again, it's only the place where we meet. God wants his people to be more than just a people that come to a building. He wants us to be a lighthouse that gives his gospel. Jesus said, ye are the light of the world. 
And that means that we're not just a light when we come here, but we're a light everywhere. We're a beacon for Christ, as Ezekiel was the watchman for Israel. Now, we may do that in different ways. Our church is a place where we meet together and we learn about the Word of God. We learn the responsibilities that we have. We learn about doctrines of God's Word. From this place, we send out missionaries to different parts of the world. And we're, and we're to keep up those Christian duties. We're to be involved in all of those things. But we are never to forget that our responsibility is as individuals to be lights everywhere that we are. To, to live a life that shows Jesus Christ and, and to tell people who Jesus really is. And if we suppress the desire that God has put into the heart of a believer when he's born again, then we're guilty of shutting out the light. And, and what happens when we do that is the lost can't see. They can't see the danger that they're in. They know nothing about it. And, and you could imagine what it would be like if a lighthouse keeper did what many Christians did. What if he never shone the light? What if he never turned the light on, never switched it on, or never kept the fuel there? Well, the light would go out. And then who's responsible? Who's responsible if a ship doesn't see the danger that it's in? Who's responsible if sailors aren't warned? Who is responsible when a ship hits the sandbar and then is broken apart by the waves? Well, this is the same question or answers that God was given to Ezekiel because he said, Ezekiel, you are the one who's responsible. You're the one who's to warn the people. You're responsible to blow the trumpet and to sound the alarm. And he said, if you don't do it, then those souls I will require at your hand. Now, there's a lot of argument over what that actually means, that the souls will be required at your hand. I don't know the answers to all of that, but I do know this. It's a very serious thing. God wouldn't warn Ezekiel with it if it wasn't serious. And so he wants us to see that same responsibility that we have. We are the ones that are supposed to warn people. Now, a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago, when we were in San Diego visiting my daughter, we went and visited the Point Loma Lighthouse. And if I remember correctly, uh, I think there was a placard there or something I read there that at one time there was a lighthouse keeper that stayed on his post there for over 30 years and never left the lighthouse. At Cape Hatteras, the lighthouse keepers kept that light burning for 47,000 straight nights. That's 129 years that the light of that lighthouse kept shining. At first, it was fueled by whale oil. It took 46 gallons of that stuff to keep the light burning every night. Can you imagine what a, what a job that must have been, what a responsibility it was? And imagine the dedication that it took to do that, just the fidelity to that job to keep that light burning. Well, God has given us the same kind of responsibility. Uh, lighthouse keepers, Christians, if we want to put it that way, the lighthouse keepers here, we, we don't have a retirement plan. We don't stop working for the Lord. It's always our responsibility to keep shining that light because the danger doesn't go away if we decide to stop telling people. The danger is always there, and so we need to warn people about it. So we need to learn this. The church, we're not confined to this building. Peter said that we are living stones that are built up into a spiritual house. He said that you are a holy priesthood. And what is it that a priest does? A priest is someone who stands between man and God. And this is what we do with the gospel. We stand here with the message and we lead people to Jesus Christ. 
Now, secondly, I'd like to talk to you about the message of the church. The message. Well, the message of the church is the gospel. And there's many ways that we could describe what the gospel is. The gospel is the entire scope of Christian doctrine. It has many different facets. Some of those things are some of the doctrines of Christianity. The gospel is very deep and difficult. But also, there's a part of the gospel that's very simple and direct, a part that's easy enough for even children to understand. And this is when we talk about the gospel as the plan of salvation for people that God has given in a way, the way that they can be they can be saved. So it's a very simple message, and it's the message that Jesus came to seek and to save those that are lost. It's a message that people need to recognize that they're sinners and that we are, so to speak, lost on a perilous sea. And there's only one way that we can be saved from destruction. That gospel, as I think you well know, is how that Jesus died, how he was buried, and how he rose again how he did all of that, that we might be justified with God. The gospel is about the blood of Jesus Christ shed in sacrifice for our sins. The gospel tells us that Christ paid the penalty that we owed to God. The Christian gospel is the light of salvation for this world. I don't think that any of us doubt the function of a lighthouse. If I ask you, what does a lighthouse do? Why, why do you have a lighthouse? That's simple enough for us to understand, isn't it? What does a lighthouse do? A lighthouse shines a light. And that's what a ship looks for when he's out at sea, when it's out at sea at night. It looks for that pinpoint of light. It looks for nothing else. It looks simply for the light. And so this is what we have to do with the gospel of Christ. We, we want to shine the light so that people see that light. The light is the message of the lighthouse, so to speak. And the gospel is our message. It's the primary focus of what we do in this church. Not a, there aren't a hundred other purposes for God's church. We don't actually have anything else, at, anything else at all to show the world. There's nothing that we have for the world except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's different methods that we use sometimes to get the gospel out. But if the gospel ever gets lost in the method, if we lose the gospel in the methods, then there's going to be a horrendous crash on the rocks. Nobody is going to be saved if that light gets muddled or if it gets obstructed. And folks, it's really sad, I think, that this is what's happening in churches in America. People are confused today about what the gospel message is. And, and I see that when we have people come, and it's very distressing to me when uh, people want to talk to me about becoming members of the church, and so they go into my office, and we sit down, and their first questions are things like, well, what's your children's program like? What are you doing in the area, uh, doing in this area for children? And what about your music program? And they want to evaluate that, and they want to make sure that the music program is sufficiently modern enough so that it makes your toes tap and you feel the fever and you shake and groove and you can really get into it. And this is what they call worship. Uh, worship is something that to them that focuses on us and what we do. But the focus of worship is not you. Do you understand this? You don't actually have to feel like you're worshiping. Who needs to feel like you're worshiping? God needs to feel like you're worshiping because he's the one who's being worshiped. You see, this is not a worship-controlled atmosphere that we like a thermostat that we turn up and down depending on how people feel at the time. That's not what worship is. 
And I hope you had a chance to uh, read your bulletin today. Let me just read one little section here that I quoted from an article out of Table Talk magazine. And uh, I have to kind of squint to see this. For some reason, the guy that writes his articles gets lengthy, and we have to kind of squeeze these down to get it all on one page. But let me read you what, uh, this, this, what I quoted here. Every weekend in churches everywhere, music is performed to the glory of human skill and artistry. Once upon a time, I sat through a little ditty at a church service in which the congregation was led to sing, I can change the world with these two hands. And the question struck me like a lightning bolt. Who exactly am I worshiping right now? Likewise, every weekend, men and women file into church buildings in order to exult in the rhetorical skill of their preacher, to admire him, and to think of their church as his church, not Christ's church. Many of us file in each week to enjoy the conspicuous spiritual exercises of our brethren. We worship the worship experience. We tithe with expectations of return from heaven's slot machine. We dress to impress, and we serve and lead to compensate for the inadequacies in our hearts that only Christ can fill. Every weekend, hundreds of preachers extol a therapeutic gospel from the pages of the same Bible where the real gospel lies. That is a problem, folks, when we don't understand what worship is. If you ask me, what is worship? Well, I don't know that I could actually give you just a, just a few-word definition of that to make you understand what it means, but I can tell you what worship is in another way. If you were here on a Sunday night a little over about a month and a half ago or something like that, we had one of the best experiences of worship that I think we've ever had in Berean Baptist Church. You know what that was? The whole congregation went out of the back parking lot and watched an eclipse. And you know what happened? It was us seeing the magnificence of God in, in, in a way, seeing the magnificence of God's creation, what God can do. And I think that turned out to be a very worshipful experience. I didn't manufacture that. I can't manufacture it. But what happened is that the Holy Spirit came and he just lifted our hearts to see the magnificent glory of God. But this is a problem that we see today, that, that churches really tried to manufacture worship. And so they have their worship leaders and they advertise their worship leaders as the one who can bring their unique style and their gifts to the spirit of worship. And people get very confused about that. They get confused, and you have all these pie-in-the-sky thinkers that are involved in all of this kind of metaphysical mishmash, and they really do not understand what it means to honor and glorify and worship God. And then I'm distressed by the social issue of the church. I mean, there are many people that uh, come to evaluate the church, and instead of asking me about doctrines, they want to know, what are your social activities like? What kind of things do you have for us to do? And what they don't do is evaluate the message that's taught from the pulpit. They don't ask about the doctrines. They don't ask about what is your focus on sin? What is your focus upon the salvation of people that are lost? What is the gospel that you preach? And nobody ever asks that question anymore. It's all about all these other things. But folks, all the other stuff is peripheral. The main focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the focus has to remain. And unfortunately, the light is never seen in most of the churches that are around us. And so you have to ask, well, if a, light, a lighthouse doesn't shine the light, then what good is it? What's the purpose of it if it doesn't shine a light? 
Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And isn't that what the message is supposed to be? What's happening to your soul? What will happen to your soul? Do you think that God is interested in whether you're going to be wealthy? Do you, do you think that the real focus of what we do in church is your prosperity? Is that what we're concerned about? Or is your health, is that the main issue of the church? Is that what God's most concerned about? And yet those very things are the gospel that's sweeping the world today or the type of gospel that's being spread around the world today. It's all this, as this author we just read a moment ago, called a therapeutic gospel. Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so the gospel of churches has been replaced with this. No, you're not supposed to have tribulation. You're doing something wrong if you have problems. You're doing something wrong if if there's tribulation, if the world is persecuting you. If you're having those kinds of problems, then it means your faith is weak. You're supposed to be prosperous. And so there's this materialistic mindset, and there isn't a gospel there that tells people that they're dying and on their way to hell. There is no gospel that says, watch out for the rocks, watch out for the danger. There's no gospel of Jesus that says, what is a man profited if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, what we have to tell people is that what you gain in this world only profits you temporarily. In the end, there's nothing in this whole world that's worth losing your soul. So what we can't do as a church is let other things that we do obscure the light. We can't let activities and all the busyness of the church substitute for the gospel itself. And that's because the rocks and the sandbars are still there. And nobody sees them if the light is not clearly visible. That's the message of the church, the gospel of Christ. Thirdly, we look at the messengers of the church. And I'll be brief with this because from what I've already said, you should understand about the messengers. There's a lighthouse and there's a lighthouse keeper. He lived there. It was his responsibility to keep the flame burning or the electricity flowing, depending on how that lighthouse operated. So his job was to keep the light burning and he didn't expect anybody else to do that job. As I mentioned, 47,000 nights at Cape Hatteras. For 30 years, one operator at Point Loma. These were very dedicated people to keeping the light burning. Now, we might imagine from that, when we use this analogy as a lighthouse, that we're talking about a singular effort. This is the effort of one person. He's the one that's supposed to do that. And so, as you look at the church as a lighthouse, you're maybe tempted to think, well, that's the pastor's job. He's the one that's supposed to be the light that shines from the lighthouse. And I agree with you this far, that I have a special responsibility that God has given me. I'm responsible to make sure that there is a truth that is taught here, the truth of the gospel is taught here, and that we don't let anything obscure the light. And that's because, as you well know, there are many churches around us that have no light at all, and people are crashing everywhere. So my job is to make sure that we're safe here. But if you're a church member who thinks that ministry is what pastors do, then you don't really understand the New Testament. New Testament doctrine teaches us that this is not a singular effort, that ministry is the work of all church members. 
Now, of course, I, as I said, I'm a keeper of light when it comes to this pulpit. I'm the keeper of light as it shines from the pulpit. But, folks, you are the keepers of the light as it shines from the pew. You're just as much responsible with the gospel of Christ as I am. And the last time I checked, there aren't many rocks in the building. Kids may track in some sand from outside and some dirt from outside, but it's not very likely that we're going to build up a sandbar here in the middle of the auditorium that we're going to have to look out for. But just in case, I'll I'll keep watch on that, and and I'll keep telling the truth from the pulpit. But the real responsibility and the real danger lies outside of these four walls. The real danger is where you are, where you go to work every day, the people that you associate with every day. These are people that are dying and going to hell, and they do not understand that one breath is all that separates them from hell. So they're on the verge of destruction. As Jonathan Edwards said, they hang by the thinnest of a spider's web, just ready to fall into the burning fire. He said, as he quoted from the Word of God, that they're on slippery rocks. And he said, in due time, in due time, their feet will slip. And so the question is, what do we do to make sure that that doesn't happen? How are we warning people about the dangers of hell? And think of yourself as as the lighthouse keeper. Are you someone who's let the light go out? Are you a watchman that forgot to blow the trumpet, forgot to tell anybody, to warn them that danger is approaching? So we all have to ask ourselves this, this question and ask ourselves and wonder about what we're doing. Do we really have a vision of hell like described in the Bible? Now, as you know, I teach on the doctrine of hell, uh, Probably some of you may think, well, maybe he just preaches on that too much because there's hardly a sermon that goes by that I don't talk about hell. We believe in everlasting punishment. But there may come a point where all we do is just believe a doctrine, that we don't really have this vision of what hell is like, the description that Jesus gave of it. It doesn't really frighten us. It really doesn't really put this reality in our heart of what will happen to people, to to relatives and co-workers and people that we know are acquaintances who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible is plainly evident that Jesus taught on hell. He taught more on it than any other person in Scripture. Just one Scripture from Mark chapter 9, let me read to you. He said, And if thy hand defend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life, than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye, than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And just for your edification, if you'll stick around here for another week or so on Sunday morning, I'm going to be right back talking about the doctrine of hell again. Revelation 14 says, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, And in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. 
If you really do believe that scripture, if you think that what this says is true, how can you ever let the light go out? How can we ever stop with this? We have to keep it burning. There's so few people that really understand the danger that's approaching. Now, fourthly tonight, I'd like to talk to you about the movement of the church, the movement of it. You might wonder, is the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse still there? Let's see, 1870, what's that, 142 years ago, if if my math is right? 142 years since it was built. Is it still there? Well, it actually is. It it was built originally 1,500 feet from the shore, but over time, with erosion from the sea and so forth, the, uh, the sea finally got within about 150 feet of the base, and so there was a danger that the lighthouse was going to fall over. So they decided to move the lighthouse, and they moved it 2,900 feet to the southwest and 1,600 feet inland. The government spent $12.5 million to move the lighthouse. So they had the International Chimney Corporation of Brooklyn, New York, to come and move the lighthouse, and they jacked it up, they built a railroad, and they set it on the railroad, and they started to move it to its new location. And there were thousands of people that showed up to watch them move the lighthouse. But then they discovered, well, the lighthouse has only been moved about two or three feet every day. And so people finally got bored with that. You couldn't even tell the lighthouse was moving at all. Nobody noticed it. And there we find a comparison with churches in America today. That's the sad story of churches today. There is a movement away from the sea. There's a movement away from ships. There has been a shift in doctrine, and there's been a shift in the purpose of the church. And what's happened? Well, salvation has been changed to better self-esteem. Sin has become dysfunctional behavior. Jesus is now a good example, but he's not the Savior. And if you travel around to churches in the area and check out to see what kinds of things they're teaching, you'll find plenty of examples of classes about how to raise children. There's plenty of classes on marriages. There's all kind of recovery ministries, and I'm not necessarily saying anything. any of that is bad. Uh, this is bad. Some churches today have sex classes, and their purpose is to help improve bedroom techniques. And what happens is nobody ever talks about sinfulness, and nobody ever talks about how we have offended a holy God, and no one ever talks about the seriousness of this offense and what's to be done about it. James Montgomery Boyce said, Far be it from us to preach a gospel that will expose people's sins, make them uncomfortable, and drive them to the Savior. And I read that when I read that comment of Boyce's, and I thought, he must have been listening to Joel Osteen's sermons or something. But then I realized that Joel Osteen died, or rather that Boyce died before Joel Osteen ever hit his stride. So that tells me that Boyce was observing something that's happening over a long period of time a long shift over a period of time until the gospel is nowhere to be found in churches. And so churches have shifted 2,900 feet to the left, and nobody ever realized that it happened. Christians today don't even recognize that Mormons are a cult. Now, Mormons say that, well, we have Jesus as our Savior, we believe in that, but they don't believe that he's the everlasting God. How could a person be a Christian who doesn't believe in the eternal deity of Jesus Christ? But you know something I read in the paper just a few days ago? That American evangelical leaders, now get me here, I'm talking about the leaders of evangelicalism in America, are urging 
Romney to get out the message that he is a Christian just like us. Osteen said that Mormons are Christians because they believe in Jesus as the Savior. And he said, if they believe that, that's good enough for me. Well, it might be good enough for him. It's good enough for Satan too because he doesn't deny it either. He trembles at the fact. And, of course, where Satan is going to end up is in the hottest part of hell. Well, this is happening in churches all over America, and unfortunately it's happening in Baptist churches too. There's been a shift of doctrine. Nobody knows where the lighthouse originally stood. In many southern Baptist churches today, 50% of the people have no idea what baptism is even for. And by the name Baptist on the door, I mean, at least that's the namesake doctrine. You'd think we'd understand why people are supposed to be baptized and what, what that's all about. Nobody knows that before the 20th century that almost 100% of churches, Baptist churches in America believe in the doctrines of grace. And yet they act as if we're the ones that have shifted. But guess what happened after they moved the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse? They turned it into a park and to a museum. And so, so now there's no ships that are saved by the lighthouse. There are no sailors that are saved. And what people go to the lighthouse for now is fun outings and picnics and recreation. Does it sound like a church, city churches we know of in the Santa Rosa area? Does it sound like what's happening here? Entertainment, having a good time? Where's the light? Where's the light of Christ that's shining from these places? Now, what I would describe them as, as is a bug light. They, they attract a lot of bugs. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there, and so they're, they get lured in by the light. And when it happens, pfft. They thought everything was okay. I mean, they got a message, and they came. They thought it was all right, but what do they end up? They end up in hell. They get fried like a bug, zapped. It's just like Boy said. People have become comfortable in their, in their sin, and the church is aiding that. The church is abetting that for people not even to know that there's a danger out there. Just go on like we are where there's not really a problem. Let me give you another example that, that fits the sea and the sailors and the ship motif that I've been using tonight. On the East Coast, all up and down the East Coast, there are yacht clubs. In nearly every city up and down the East Coast, there are yacht clubs. And did you know this, that yacht clubs, clubs started out as, a, as rescue stations? What they did originally is when there was a ship that was sinking or when there were sailors that needed help, the members of the yacht clubs would get in their boats and they'd go out and they'd rescue these people that were, that were drowning or needed help. But over the years the members of the yacht club figured out that it was more fun to socialize than it was to rescue. And so they stopped going out and rescuing people. And so now, no, no matter where you go, up and down the east coast of the yacht clubs, you won't find any ships that are saved or any people that are being saved or rescued by yacht clubs. And that's the same situation as churches in America today. There's very little gospel being preached. Now, I'd like to give you an example of... of a church that was close to my house in Kentucky. I mean, this, this is a church that was close enough that with Lincecum's arm, you could hit it with a, with a rock. Well, maybe that's a bad example. You probably couldn't actually hit it. But um, a few years ago, this, this, this church that's, that's so close to my house, and I mean, I could walk there in just, just a few minutes, and they, um, uh, they were in, in the midst of a $35 million expansion. And since that time, since I've left Kentucky several years ago, that church has expanded again. 
Now they have a church campus that's um, about 115 acres. They started with 20, they've grown to 115, and if you want a little comparison, we have two here. So 115 acres. 6,000 people attended church there, and now they're averaging between 10 and 12,000 people. And um, I would sometimes listen to their television program just to see what they were teaching, what they were saying, and all the times that I that I listened to their program, I never heard the gospel. Not one time did I ever hear the gospel preached. They have lots of activities. They have charity events. They have benevolent works. But I never heard the gospel. Now, to be fair about that church, I don't think they actually moved anywhere because I, I know the history of the church. I know, you know what group they came out of, what, what group they started with, and it was a group that teaches a false gospel. Let me, let me give you one of their main tenets of the faith. Here's what they say, that how a person is saved. They say what you need to do to be saved is you need to repent of your sins, and you need to confess those sins, and then you need to come to Christ in faith. And then they say, and you need to be baptized into him. And so what they've done is they've added water, baptism, into their formula for salvation. Not faith alone, but now they've added something to that. That's what Paul said is another gospel. He said that's not the gospel. Adding baptism to repentance and faith is the same thing the Judaizers did, only they added circumcision to repentance and faith. And what do we call that? That's a man-made gospel. That is a a Satan-made gospel. But that doesn't really matter because this church that has no gospel in it, and as far as I know, I I don't think they've ever taught taught the true gospel of Christ, but now that church is embraced as one of the leading evangelical churches, not only in the area, but in America. And that's the social place to be. And that's typical of churches all across America where they say, fill up the pews, bring in people. It doesn't matter what what you have, what you do, bring them in. And when you get them there, keep them there, whatever you have to do to keep them there. The pastor of this church is not called the pastor. He's called the lead follower. I don't don't know the Greek for that. I couldn't find it in the New Testament. Uh, Apostles call us shepherds and pastors. That's That's what we are. But this is what we face. Churches that once preached the gospel have moved into the same lane with those that never had a gospel, and nobody even knows there's a difference. Nobody even recognizes this. And so you have lighthouses that dot the countryside, and there's no light shining. Paul said to the Galatian churches, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another He said, you have moved to a different gospel, which is not the same gospel as that of Jesus Christ. Your light has gone out, is what he's saying, and you're a bug zapper, not a lighthouse. That's the New International Smith Version, NISV. I got that directly from there. And this is the very thing that we have to guard against, folks. Now, we may be in the middle of an imperceptible shift, And I don't think it's really a shift from the gospel. I I don't think that's really our problem. I think that we're in the middle of a shift of moving away from a desire to share the gospel. Now we just come to church. Now we just fellowship with one another. But we really don't give the gospel to other people. There's no real desire to do that. And you know what happens when you lose the desire? There is no more Berean Baptist Church. A few weeks ago, the Episcopal Church of Roner Park closed its doors. I read that in the paper. And why did they do it? They died out. 
there's not enough people anymore, so they couldn't keep the place up, so they closed the doors. Well, that's not really a bad thing because they didn't have the gospel anyway. But it's indicative of the problem, isn't it, that this is what happens to no-growth congregations. They shrivel up and they die. Now, I'm concerned about that, and I hope that you are too. You know, we're, we're, we, I think we get discouraged by this, and we think about the people that have, that have left and uh, folks leave for various reasons. Maybe it's the economy and other circumstances. As I said the other night, I'm thankful that no one's called me up and said, well, I'm leaving the church because I'm mad at you. I don't think you're preaching the gospel any longer. Nobody said that to me. But for various reasons, people leave. But what we can't do is we can't sit here and cry about people that have left. What we have to do is we have to go and replace that number and build on top of that number. Because if we don't, we're in danger of being undermined and being toppled into an ocean of unbelievers. And so there's a question for us. Are we concerned enough to do something about it? Or we just want to talk about the thing all the time? Do we keep suppressing this desire that's in us to bring people to Christ? That This desire that the Holy Spirit put into the heart of every believer. And if, there, if, that, is, if that desire has never been in you, then I'd have to say that you never, sa- never were saved. Everybody gets that. The Holy Spirit impresses us with that. You want people to know about Christ. We're the ones that suppress it. We're the ones that keep trying to put it down when that desire arises. We've got to stop doing that. We've got to give people the gospel. So we look at these analogies again. Ezekiel, he's the watchman on the wall. He's the one that's like the watchman on the wall to warn people that the enemy's coming, the enemy's armed to destroy We've, we've talked about the keeper of the lighthouse. We have to warn sailors, warn people on the ships that they're dangerously close to being buried in the graveyard of the Atlantic. We have to be a yacht club that's decided to go back to being a rescue station. And if that's what we are, then we need to do it. And we need to be determined to do it. We need to man the wall. We need to stand at the light. We need to be ready to jump in the boat and go rescue drowning sailors. A hymn writer wrote a long time ago, Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore. But to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor fainting, struggling seamen, you may rescue, you may save. See, we're the watchmen. We're the light of the world. We're the lighthouse to warn sailors of the danger that's approaching. So this is what we have to do. We have to man that light for the salvation of souls. And we do it also for this very main purpose, and that's for the glory of God. That's what he's called us to do, win people to save their souls for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and Hopefully, Lord, people begin to see, we all begin to see the great responsibility that we have and how that we are not busy about doing this as we should, no matter where we are, to tell people about Christ, to point them to the way of salvation. Lord, I pray that you would make us a a great lighthouse here, that souls would be saved, and no matter where our members are, that they uh, emanate Jesus Christ from, from their actions, activities, the way they dress, the way they talk, Everything about them just speaks the Lord Jesus Christ. We're far more in danger of leading people away by the things that we do than leading people to Christ if we're not a light everywhere that we are 
unless we show that we have what we have actually believed in our hearts. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be the light that you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.